2: Hey, are those Cape Cod chips you're eating? Yeah. You know what they make those things? Uh, Cape Cod, I assume. You're darn right they make them in Cape Cod. Right on Breed's Hill Road in Hyannis. Down the street from the mall. Do you know what else they make in Cape Cod? Uh... Belts. Belts with little whales on them. That's cool. No, it's not cool. The whale belts are an embarrassment. The chips are delicious. They're a local treasure. We're deeply proud of them. Now, can I have a chip, please? Sure. Cape Cod chips. Back home, we're a pretty big deal.
3: BLOB TALK RADIO Ladies and
4: gentlemen, welcome to today's broadcast of Tap to the Truth. With you as always, this is your host, Tim Tap, and I do hope you are having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, unless, of course, you're engaged in global jihad. In that case, I hope you are not having a good day because, well, you're a bad person. At any anyway, rate, welcome to today's show, and uh, with us today, we're absolutely jam-packed with the expected guests. We're scheduled to have... Uh, Michael Meharry, the National Communication Director for the Tenth Amendment Center uh, and author of Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. He should be joining us uh, here shortly. And then later in the second hour, we're scheduled to have with us Dr. William Briggs, Adjunct Professor of Statistics at Carnell, and uh, a gentleman who has spent some time looking at climate change and uh, we're going to have a discussion about that in the second hour uh talking about the models and uh, the way things have transpired also hoping to have an extra bonus guest in the second hour we'll see how that plays out as well in the meanwhile we're waiting for uh mr meharry to join us and i believe he actually is uh coming online right now uh so let's go ahead and get started uh Uh, Mr. Meharry, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great. How are you?
4: I'm doing really well, thanks. Uh, uh, First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for giving up part of your Sunday to join us and uh, talk about uh, things that you're doing, things that the uh, Tenth Amendment Center is doing. Uh, First and foremost, uh, for the folks who may not be familiar, uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about the Tenth Amendment Center. Sure.
2: The uh, Tenth Amendment Center is an organization that is primarily focused on... uh, holding to the original meaning of the Constitution and the original limits of power that were intended to be applied to the federal government. And uh, this is laid out very nicely in the Tenth Amendment, which essentially says that any power that was not delegated to the federal government remains with the states and the people. So anything that you don't find in that list of uh, uh, powers in Article One, Section 8, or uh, the few other powers scattered throughout the uh, Constitution; Those things were actually meant to be left to the states and to the people, not to the federal government. Of course, today we have a federal government that does virtually anything and everything. And uh, so our goal at the 10th Amendment Center is to roll that power back and bring it back into what the founders actually intended.
4: Now, a- as a result of uh, your efforts, a lot of what you guys do is education to the general public. Uh, unfortunately, we have a public school system that has not done a particularly good job of letting people know what's in the Constitution, what isn't. What can you do, what can't. I've heard a lot of discussion, especially uh, after the recent uh, opinions uh, that were released by the Supreme Court, uh, a lot more talk about nullification. Uh, You guys at the 10th Amendment Center are big proponents of nullification, correct? Correct.
3: Well,
2: absolutely, and, and and you're right. We do our our work basically focuses in two directions. Uh, we do a lot of education, and you're absolutely right. There's so much ignorance, and and so much. And when I say ignorance, I don't really necessarily mean that. As, you know, it kind of has a mean connotation, but it's just it's just a fact of life. People aren't taught the founding principles. They aren't taught what the Constitution was was meant. So we spend a lot of time just doing that. We write a lot of articles on. Uh, you know, founding principles on what the uh, ratifiers and and those that were involved in uh, bringing the Constitution into existence, what they said. The other part of our work focuses on activism, and we use this process called nullification. Uh, And and for those who have never heard the word, and there's probably some out there going, what are these these guys talking about? Nullification is basically, as we define it, any action that's taken by a state that serves to nullify, in effect, an act or a law or an uh, a action of the federal government that is outside the bounds of the Constitution. So uh, a lot of what we focus on now is, is really what we call nullification in practice. So, you know, we're not saying that we're changing the law or anything, but we're having the states or pushing, pushing the states to do things that will, in effect, make uh, these federal actions not work, so it nullifies them and makes them stop. And, you know, I'll give you an example which ties right into uh, one of the recent uh, Supreme Court opinions and I, I, I like the way you called it an opinion because that's all it is uh, but in the realm of Obamacare you know I think a lot of people now are going oh my gosh what are we going to do they were counting on the Supreme Court to rule uh, in our favor and you know of course I didn't expect that at all because the federal government uh, almost always protects the federal government and the Supreme Court is part of the federal government so uh the, the ruling didn't surprise me, but it leaves you wondering, what can we do? I mean, I don't really think that we can count on Mitch McConnell to, uh, to repeal it. And, you know, the, the term is repeal and replace, and I would contend that uh, replace isn't the right thing to do either. It's not a federal issue. So what do we do? Well, states can do one thing simply by not doing anything. They can refuse to cooperate, refuse to do anything to implement the uh, Obamacare program. They can just basically say, federal government, you want to have an Obamacare system, implement it yourself. Well, they don't have the resources to do it. They don't have the people. Uh, there are a number of things in the uh, in the legislation itself that makes it vulnerable uh, and, and needs state cooperation. So by simply not doing anything, the states have the power to not- basically make the whole thing collapse and essentially repeal it in effect.
4: Well, in the case of uh, Obamacare in particular, uh We saw several states actually do exactly that. They didn't set up exchanges. The most recent uh, opinion uh, was the way of saying the federal government could take steps to overcome that. Uh, Are there other issues, though? Is there other things that we can do specifically at an activist level to push our state legislators to take a more specific role, like legislation within the state to actually counteract the federal government's efforts, or is that a step too far?
2: No, absolutely. There are things that we can do. And and actually, this last legislative session, Arizona kind of gave us the blueprint. Uh, the uh, Arizona legislature passed a fantastic piece of legislation, and, and essentially what it does is it prohibits the state from providing any personnel or any resources or any enforcement mechanisms uh, that would help to or have any input into implementing or running the Obamacare system in the state of Arizona. Where this becomes uh, particularly interesting is the fact that you know Obamacare has all of these uh, mandates within it that require insurance to contain specific things. So we've probably heard a lot about the uh, birth control and and, and things like this, or the provision in it that requires that uh, insurance cover people, uh, children, quote unquote, to the age of 26. All of these are federal mandates. Well, who enforces insurance regulations? It's the insur- insurance commissioners in the states. Under this uh, this new law that Arizona's passed, the insurance commissioner in the state of Arizona will no longer lift a finger to enforce or do anything at all to uh, deal with these federal mandates. So, you know, if, if an insurance company was to say, uh, "Drop your kid when he turned 25," and you're saying, "Oh no, you know, the law says 26." Well, they would go normally go to the insurance commissioner, and the insurance commissioner would uh, investigate and enforce this particular provision. Well, that's not going to happen in Arizona, so I don't really know who the people are going to call because there is no federal insurance commissioner. There is no mechanism for the federal government to enforce their own mandates. They count on the states to do it. In Arizona, this won't happen. This is extremely significant. Uh, there's other provisions in this law, too, and, and I would in- encourage anybody to uh, to go over to the 10th Amendment Center website and and go to our, uh, our reading blog section. You just Google, or not Google, but search in there, uh, Arizona Obamacare, and you can pull up a great article that explains all the specific provisions and the impact that it will have on implementation of Obamacare in Arizona.
3: Okay. Well,
4: uh, as just a simple point, I want to make it very clear here because, again, I know there's still a lot of confusion about nullification. I hear some people actually try and make the argument – of course, these are typically leftists, by the way – try to make the argument that it's actually illegal, although they tend to support nullification in cases like with the Sanctuary City, for example. That is a form of nullification Absolutely. But, actually would be, but actually would be illegal because immigration is something that does fall under the preview of the federal government
2: well I think there's two there's two different ways that you can look at nullification and, uh, and this is something that in the last couple of years we've tried to uh make people understand and help people understand i don't think may that sounds kind of <laughs> kind of hard handed there but but to help people understand exactly uh, what types of avenues nullification can take and there's basically two and, and they're kind of hinge on the two different definitions of nullification uh there's a nullification in a legal sense. And it essentially means to make it void legally. So, uh, you know, if if a court rules that a a contract is no longer in effect, it nullifies the contract. It's legally binding. Uh, The contract is no longer part of the law. Now, I contend that state legislatures, state governments, uh, the people of the states have every right to take this type of action and go so to Jefferson. Jefferson said that uh, the nullification of a law is the rightful remedy. But virtually nobody in the legal world believes this anymore. You know, It's, it's again, a result of how far we've actually strayed from uh, our original constitutional roots, and it's why we spend so much time writing about this and, and trying to explain to people uh, exactly what the founding uh, generation meant when they set up the federal government and how they meant those federal powers to be delegated and how they meant them to be checked. Uh, And and I'm going to do a shameless plug here. I've actually written a a full book about nullification called uh, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. And uh, people can find that on the Tenth Amendment Center website. So that's that's my shameless plug for this show. Um, But there's another thing that we can do where there is no legal debate whatsoever and this actually follows the prescription that James Madison gave us, gave us in Federalist 46. And, of course, this was an issue during the ratification period. Of people were asking, you know, you're telling us that we've got this federal government, and this federal government's going to have limited power. So how does it stay limited? And Madison said that there is a, a remedy that is powerful and at hand. And, and basically what he said is that the states could take action, and among those actions were refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union. And it's interesting, if you read Federalist 46, he talks about unwarranted powers. So if the federal government exercises unwarranted powers, the states can take these actions. But then he actually said, or even warranted powers that happen to be unpopular. So Madison held that the people of a state could look at something that the federal government was doing. And if it was vastly unpopular in that state, they could say, you know what? We don't really want to have anything to do with this. Now, That's not saying that they can go out and and, you know call up the militia to stop the federal government from enforcing it. But notice what he said. He said refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. Now that's exactly what I'm talking about with the Arizona uh, Obamacare law. They don't do anything to actually you know try to physically stop the federal government from implementing it or operating the system. But what they do say is we're not going to cooperate. We're not going to take any action. We're not going to take any steps we're not going to be part of this whatsoever. Do it yourself. This is actually something that the Supreme Court has held is perfectly legitimate, even if it's a constitutional. So even if the Supreme Court says, you know, this Obamacare is is constitutional, which you and I are probably going to agree is absolutely ridiculous, it still doesn't mean that the states have to lift a finger to do it. And it's the same thing with the sanctuary cities. And I I understand that uh, probably a lot of your listeners are, are going to get a little... Tense about this, but the fact of the matter is there's nothing that says that the states have to enforce federal immigration law. The feds have to do it themselves. So that is essentially the the mechanism that we've been using at the Tenth Amendment Center. Instead of trying to engage in this legal debate that we're going to lose every time because of the way the system is evolved, we're simply finding ways that the state can refuse cooperation and stop federal implementation because they don't have the manpower. They don't have the resources. do it themselves and there's all kinds of of things that this could apply to Uh, another great example and where we've had some some very well developed legislation that have been passed in in a few states so far is refusal to cooperate with federal gun laws so in other words the the feds say we're going to confiscate assault weapons well the state would say okay feds try to confiscate assault weapons here in Idaho by yourself because our police, our sheriffs our law enforcement, we're not going to lift a finger to help you. Well, the ugly truth is that, you know, maybe in one state the feds could do it themselves. You do that in 20 or 30 states, the feds are powerless. So it's nullification in practice. And, again, perfectly legal, the Supreme Court is held in, in four major Supreme Court decisions dating all the way back into 1842 that the federal government cannot states to cooperate or participate or provide resources to enforce federal acts or federal laws. So it's a great power that we have that we can use against the federal government to check it and put it back in its place. Okay.
4: So uh, it basically, if at least 15 or more states banded together, and even if the current Supreme Court was to come around and hold a different opinion – as far as whether or not the states could nullify or not, the bottom line is at that point the federal government simply wouldn't have the means and resources itself to force those states to comply.
2: Right, exactly, and 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 you know, like I said, the Supreme Court has already held that uh, the federal government can't force those states to to comply. They cannot right. commandeer state or, or local resources, and you know, I don't even know that it takes fifteen or twenty, but. You know, people are kind of shaking their head and going, I don't know if this would really work or not. And, and you know, I understand that, that people are skeptical of this idea. All you really have to do is look at what happened in the realm of marijuana and medical marijuana. And is now starting to happen in the realm of hemp. Uh, and no matter what you think about marijuana, it's another one of these things that's clearly an issue that it should be left to the states. And anybody that wants to argue with me about this, I always point out that it took a constitutional amendment to prohibit alcohol. So there's really no difference between prohibiting an alcohol and prohibiting a plant. Well, you know, back in 1996, the California uh, people in a referendum legalized marijuana for medical use. And the feds clacked down and they tried to stop it and couldn't stop it. So... Uh, they went to the Supreme court and the Supreme court said, Hey, the federal government is perfectly uh, able to regulate and prohibit marijuana. And, you know, they twisted the, the commerce clause to fit their purposes. Uh, You know, and the only dissenting opinion was, uh, was actually uh, Clarence Thomas. And he made the point, you know, if the federal government can regulate six uh, plants growing in your backyard, it can regulate virtually anything. But, Regardless of the Supreme Court decision, states kept legalizing medical marijuana anyway. And today we have 23 states that uh, have legal medical marijuana. We have four states that have legalized recreational marijuana. And we've had six states that have completely legalized industrial hemp, which is a, a fantastic uh, you know, economic agricultural crop. Well, at this point, the federal government has already lost that war. Uh, You know, they're not enforcing it. They can't. They don't have the resources. We actually did some math, and we determined that it would cost, like, more than the yearly DEA budget just to shut down all of the medical marijuana facilities in Boulder, Colorado. That's one city in one state. It's extremely expensive. It's extremely manpower intensive, and they need the states to do it. So if the states say, we're not going to do this, then it's not going to happen.
4: And uh, essentially, this does apply equally to anything legislation-wise that comes from the federal government, whether it's a, uh, a law or an executive uh, order or even a Supreme Court ruling. Correct?
2: Exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and the federal government's the federal government. I mean, you know, we we do have a separation of powers within the branches, but. Uh, people need to understand that it, you know it's essentially one one big entity. You know that's what's so laughable about the idea that you know people want the Supreme Court to be the final say. And people tell you that all the time. Well, the Supreme Court has the final say on what's constitutional or not. Well, from a philosophical and, and standpoint, that's a ridiculous position to hold. If you actually believe that the federal government is supposed to be limited, if you believe that the people. Created a federal government that was meant to be limited. Why in the world would you give part of that federal government the power to decide what its limits are? <laughs> you know, it, it, it then essentially becomes an unlimited, uh, unlimited government. And James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and many others asserted from the very beginning that ultimately, in the final, uh, you know, in the final calculation of things, it is the people of the states that have the final authority because they're the ones that delegated the power in the first place.
4: Right. Well, yeah, you know, I, I keep asking, trying to make that point to hammer home because, again, like I said, I've talked to a lot of people, and there's still a lot of confusion about nullification, and I want to make it as simple and as straightforward for everybody to understand because there are a lot of folks who do get it, and while they're out there trying to talk about taking it to this level, let's, let's start looking at nullification as a viable option, and so many people – you now, a lot of folks just haven't ever heard of it. And the folks who have, they have a lot of confusion and they have people telling them conflicting things. So I want to make sure that it is crystal clear to anybody listening that this isn't me, my individual uh, opinion, but uh, this is a word coming from a man who's the communication director for an organization who is dedicated to understanding and preserving the Constitution, our limited government. These these are people who know what they're talking about. It's not just some guy with an opinion on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: you know, and I would take it to the next level. And I tell this this all the time. This isn't coming from Mike Meharry I, I didn't make this up. You know, this this is a, a an idea that is documented by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And uh, you know, I'll give the quick historical uh, quick historical context in 1798. Congress passed a law, uh, a series of laws actually, called the Alien and Sedition Acts. And among these laws was uh, the Sedition Act. And basically what it did was it criminalized criticizing the federal government. So You you could be put in jail for criticizing Congress. You could be put in jail for criticizing the uh, the president. And, And this actually happened. There was actually a sitting congressman in New Hampshire that was arrested, and put in jail because he said bad things about President John Adams during his campaign. And he—it's kind of funny—he actually won the election while he was in jail. But you know, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and, and others recognized that if this was allowed to stand, uh, first off, he would never have any uh, any type of political. Uh, diversity in the country because the party in power would automatically be able to crush any type of opposition. They also recognize that obviously this is a huge violation of the first amendment. And so Thomas Jefferson and James Madison each drafted bills that became known as the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798. And uh, the Kentucky legislature passed the uh, one Jefferson wrote and the Virginia legislature passed the one uh, that Madison wrote. And these two documents together lay out the Philosophical Framework for Nullification. They explain exactly why and how it was meant to work. And I would encourage anybody to actually Google these two documents, look them up, and read them yourselves. and They're not that terribly long. It'll take you maybe, maybe 30, 45 minutes to read both of them. I remember about, it's been about seven years ago that I read these for the first time, and it blew my mind because I'd never heard of such a thing before. But, but these are, you know, the Madison is known as the father of the Constitution, and Jefferson is the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. And It's laid out there. It's crystal clear when you read it. There's there's really no debating, and there's really no debating the logic behind the words that they say. So, I'd encourage anybody to read it for themselves. Don't take my word for it. It's right there in, in, in a quill pen and parchment, so to speak.
4: Right. All right. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I, I know we uh I, I would love to keep you on for hours literally to to discuss this because there are so much people need to understand but uh if uh somebody's uh, looking to uh, learn more about the 10th amendment where would they look uh the 10th amendment center what would they look
2: well all you need to do is uh get on your trusty internet web and uh Type in www.tenthamendmentcenter.com. It's T-E-N-T-H is spelled out, so it's Tenth Amendment Center, all one word, .com, and uh, you'll find uh, right there on the front page we have uh, our our main articles. Uh, when you click on to read more, we have blog articles where we actually tra- track legislation. Uh, there are places in there where you can actually look at the different bills that we're pushing. You can see how uh, how they're moving. We've got maps that show where specific bills have inter- been introduced. Uh, you can see the various issues that that we that we work on. It's it's an incredible website, a lot of information. I encourage everybody to, to head over there and give it a visit. And uh, and we're always looking for people to get involved. So if you go over there and see what you like, uh, there's a the volunteer button. Click that, and and we'll get you plugged in and put
4: you to work. All right. And if anybody wants to learn anything more about Mike, you also can check out his personal website at Uh, uh You can also find you at Twitter at maharry 10th Is that correct?
2: That's correct. And uh, if you go over to my website, you'll also find that I have a podcast uh, I put out about every other week. And, uh, Various articles I write, which are not all 10th Amendment oriented, but you know, I I delve into some things that are more personal to me. But uh, I think people will find some some challenging thought. My one of my goals in life is to make people think a little bit outside of the boxes that they're normally used to thinking in, or as as my friend Tom Woods likes to say, thinking outside
4: of the three by five three by five index card of acceptable opinion. <laughs> I like that. uh Also, if you're interested in uh, reading. Uh, Michael's latest book, which is called "Recovering the Lost Path to Liberty." Of course, the actual title is "Our Last Hope: Recovering the Last Path to, Lost Path to Liberty," mm-hmm. or one of his previous two books. Uh, you can find those probably over at your personal website as well.
3: Yeah, as actually, well uh, a- you,
2: you got it. There's a link. Uh, there's a link there to my own. Uh, I've got my own little personal store. You can find both of those. Actually, all of my books on Amazon. Uh, both in in kindle print and audio versions and you can also find them at the uh, 10th amendment center website and chop around a little bit because you might find uh every once in a while the 10th amendment center will drop the price on it a little bit so check there first
4: all right well again thank you very much for coming on today uh you have an open invitation on the show at any point in time uh, and I would very much like to have you on at some point down the road to talk specifically about uh, individual items, but I wanted to give folks an overview today, especially about nullification. It's like I heard there's there's a, a new movement that I've heard, the grumbling's getting louder. I think more people are looking at that option, and I appreciate you helping to shed light on that. Well, I
2: appreciate you having me, and, and I'd be happy to come on any time. Just uh, shoot me an email, and, and we'll do it again and discuss whatever issues happen to come up.
4: All right, again, thank you very much, sir. Uh, you have a, a great rest of your Sunday. Have a great upcoming week, and God bless.
2: Likewise to you and to all of your listeners.
4: Right, thank you, sir. And, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that was uh, Mr. Michael Meharry. Uh He is, like I already mentioned, the National Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center. And if you're not familiar with it already, I highly recommend you hop on over To the Tenth Amendment Center.com. There are links in the show description today to the website as well as to Michael's personal uh, website. I've got his Twitter handle on there as well, links to his books. So, uh, by all means, please check him out. Uh, Check out the Tenth Amendment Center. And, uh, you know, I mean, what else can I say? Nullification seems to be something that is on the rise. I've heard a lot of people talking about it. In fact, Uh, Danny Page, who's been on the show uh, multiple times, uh, contacted me last week uh, about a push that he's organizing to try and get some of the state representatives here in Tennessee to look at uh, nullification for several things, and uh, he's actually agreed to be on next week, so we'll be discussing his specific efforts next week. So I thought it was really great timing to have uh, uh, Michael McCary on today so that we could get a better understanding, a better fundamental knowledge of nullification. Because like I said, I've had a lot of conversations with folks uh, even in the past couple of weeks where the topics come up, and a lot of people don't even understand the first thing. And it's not their fault. It's one of those things that it doesn't get discussed a whole lot. And if you don't know what's going on, if you're not familiar with the concept, I mean, yeah, you hear the word nullification, and if you know the definition of to nullify something, well, then you've got a pretty good idea of what it's referencing. But to understand that it's a legal option, it's a course of action that's been constitutionally prescribed and prescribed by the framers beyond the Constitution itself, that's when you really dig into what's going on, what they're talking about, and the the whole fact that – you know, that is something we can do as individuals. We can push our elected re- representatives at the state and even at county and city levels, as we've seen with sanctuary cities, a topic I'm not particularly pleased with myself, but uh, it is another example of nullification. I want to send a special shout-out to Mary in the chat room. as uh, She's joined us, and uh, she says she's just uh, bookmarked the Tenth Amendment uh, page. I suggest anybody and everybody out there that's interested, in what they do, to go do the same. Uh, also, going to shift gears a little bit now because, like I said, in the second hour, we're scheduled to be uh, joined by Dr. Briggs, and we'll be talking about climate change and uh, that kind of thing uh, when he joins us. But in this little in-between time, I wanted to look at a couple of outrages from this past week. And it, this, if you were paying attention this week, there has been a ton of things. That are equally outrageous, some of which has to do with uh, sanctuary cities. Uh, But first and foremost, and what I think may be the biggest one overall, I, I think Oregon is really, really pushing hard to try and out California, California. They continue to come up with some of the most unusual, unique, and crazy left-leaning ideas I've heard of. I think by now you probably heard this past week. It came out uh, heavy towards the end of the week. Oregon is now allowing 15-year-old kids to have sex change operations, not only without parental consent, which is absolutely ridiculous to me, but at the taxpayer's expense. This was part of a legal status in the state that changed starting back in January.
0: But a lot of people are just now finding Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify.
4: finding out because the issue has started coming up. Now, they want to talk about this sexual dysphoria, uh, orientation dysphoria, gender dysphoria. Just another word for gender confusion syndrome and uh, half a dozen other things they've called it in the past two decades. And it's still technically listed as a mental disorder. Now, as we know in this wonderful world of tolerance and acceptance, suggesting a mental disorder might be in play when you're confused about your gender identity, is completely unacceptable. So I'm surprised that they've been able to get away with this as long as they have. But the point being is there are people that are really out there trying to make the argument that this is a good thing. Because There are children that are suffering, that are committing suicide, that are mutilating their own genitalia because they can't get the assistance they need. So by doing this, it opens a a dialogue between the school and the state and the student. Does anybody else notice an important part of the equation missing? This has a lot to do with this Well, it's a Harry Paris mentality of we've got to get people past the idea that kids are their own. The state thinks it owns you. The state thinks it owns your kids. The state thinks it owns all your resources. Uh, We're lucky they let us keep any of our money. That's the way they look at that, and it doesn't just apply to the money. I literally heard a person make an impassioned emotional plea on behalf of this law stating that it's necessary because children are suffering. Never mind the fact that every major study that's been done on this dysphoria easily points out that by the time the kids get halfway through puberty, it's gone. Mary, making a very good point, saying that she'll tell you what's missing from the equation, God – or can't argue with that. Mary's spot on right that. There is this tremendous lack of moral compass and the tremendous lack of faith in a higher being that has invaded our society. And it's it's infuriating that so many people will look at you Like you're from a different planet if you start talking about God or religion or moral values of any kind when it comes to conversations along these topics. But I'm trying to figure out what makes it okay for a 15-year-old to make a decision about a sex reassignment surgery without even so much as a single consent form or permission slip from a parent? How does that happen in a reasonable society? Well, I think Mary hit the nail out right on the head. Uh, first of all, no God. Uh, the state believes it is God. And we've had conversations along those lines before. There's no question. There's a reason why uh, socialists and Marxists hate people of faith, And it comes down to the fact that it's mostly because people of faith will never accept the state as their God. People of faith will never set back and let the state take care of them. They're never going to rely completely on the government. It's just not going to happen. Uh, Mary's bringing up the point that uh, they want to do stuff to uh, preschool kids. And and again, absolutely right. We talked – Uh, Now, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, about kindergarten students being taught about gender neutrality, which is the most ridiculous bunch of hooey I've ever heard. No, you're gender neutral. No, your gender has to do with your biology. And your sexual identity isn't a factor if you're a preschool kid. And uh, as Mary points out, it's... It's child abuse, and I'll agree with that because it is an attempt to change the mental status and confuse kids about something doesn't even exist in their brains yet. And, and there's there's no question it is a form of child abuse. Uh, but this this goes well beyond the fact that you know you're talking about a 15 year old who's just getting into puberty. Uh, Even if you have early-onset puberty, chances are you're not finished with puberty yet at 15. Uh, How is it that you you can't get a tattoo, which I think is far less uh, life-altering than sexual reassignment surgery? You can't go buy uh, any alcohol, can't buy a pack of cigarettes, There's a ton of things. I've heard some other talk show hosts go down a big long list of things that a 15-year-old cannot do in the state of Oregon, although given the way that the folks in Oregon are writing their state laws, they may very well change some of those too. I don't know, but I mean it's just absolutely outrageous. It's equally parts outrageous that they would be willing to let minors confide in the states. and take life-altering actions without parental consent. And it is even more so outrageous that they would do it at the taxpayer's expense. Now, as far as sexual reassignment is concerned, if that's what you feel like you need to do, then go do it. You're the one who's going to answer for what you do. I'm not the kind of person that wants to get into your business, but it becomes my business and every other person's who pays their taxes business when you start having taxpayers pay for your stuff. In this case, uh, it's a matter of Medicare, so it's not even necessarily just people from the state of Oregon that will be on the hook, so then we all have a say. Uh, Mary points out that some parents are for it, and and – That might very well be the case. Uh, Obviously, there had to be somebody for it in order for this to become the law of the state. And I'm going to assume at least some of those people had kids. But it still comes back to a very simple notion, a very simple idea, and that is the parents have a right to know what's going on with their minor children, period, in the discussion. The parents – are still the parents. The kids do not belong to the state, no matter what the state wants to try and con- try and convince us of. It's not acceptable, in my mind, that people would stand back and allow this. And the parents that are for this, you know, I have to wonder if their mental faculties are all in place. I mean, we can make comments all day about how good of a parent a parent really is. I I don't want to go down that road because I know how I would feel when people start questioning my parenting uh, choices and decisions. I know I have been known to do some things that other parents might frown upon because I don't believe in endless groundations and endless timeouts. In fact, I'm not a fan of the timeout at all. I am a fan of grounding first, but I am also of the opinion that occasionally – You have to spank a child. And I think that if you discipline your child, and I fully understand, and everyone else needs to fully understand, there's a big difference between discipline and abuse. You can spank a child and it not be abusive. Some people take it too far, yeah, okay. In those cases, well, it's wrong. But there are a lot of cases that it's completely the appropriate thing to do. And that's what needs to happen in those cases. The right thing, but it's up to the parent to decide their course of action. To a point, the state should very rarely get involved in situations like this. But for a woman, and I told you, I saw this very impassioned. uh, It was kind of a debate. Two different people. They were on a news show, and they were going back and forth, and just so emotional. Which you know, that's what the left does anyway. And they never want to stay on facts. They never want to stay on point. They want to make those impassioned pleas and let you know that emotions are in play and children are suffering. It's for the children. I had a dime for every time I heard somebody push a bad idea onto the American public under the battle cry, it's for the children. We all could retire early. So it's not for the children. It's not. But that's the battle cry. But the other person in the discussion, uh, the person – these were both uh, individuals that were uh, family therapists, and they had their expertise. Uh, What I – I almost busted out laughing when I heard this study because she was getting the last word, and she said, well, not only do these kids need some help, but evidently some of the adults do too. And and I think that was a perfect place to leave it because it's pretty obvious. If you want to say it's okay for minors – to have sexual reassignment surgeries on the taxpayer's dime, you're overstepping the grounds of government and you're overstepping the grounds of personal decency. And as Mary says, you're abusing the children. These children don't need to be placated to the point of, well, it's okay and we'll do whatever you want and let's just do this before you have any idea how much it's going to change the rest of your life. The kind of help they need is an opportunity to have a safe place to talk. The conversation that needs to be opened up needs to be with somebody in the home or a trusted person. It's not the role of the state to take on that determination that not only can they provide that safe place to talk, but that they can be a buffer between the child and the parent when it comes to something that the parent's doing nothing wrong. Now, it gets to be a slippery slope when you start talking about cases of, well, when the parents are doing something wrong and the state does need to intervene. There there are cases like that. I, I will admit it. Uh, I, I'm not saying that there's never that possibility and that it doesn't happen. Yet. But in the cases where the parents are doing nothing wrong, what business does the state have, Oregon or any other And again, I mean, since January, and here it is, middle of July, and it's just now coming to light. People are just now finding out about this. It's just now making the news cycle. So while this is one of the outrages of the week this week, it's astounding. I'd go ahead and throw a third outrage into this story, which is what put it over the top and made it the biggest outrage of the week. The third outrage and that it took this long for even the people in Oregon to find out that this is one of the things that has been established and is legally on the books in their state since January of this year. Unbelievable. All right. I don't want to stay on that particular soapbox much longer, but again, I just – it's mind-boggling to me. I'm sorry. Another outrage of the week. It's bad enough that a 32-year-old woman was shot and killed by an illegal alien in San Francisco. It was horrible. But as more and more of this story comes to light, there's more and more things that are outrageous about this story as well. And this was a close battle. It absolutely infuriated me when Barack Hussein Obama, aka the Occupier, came out in a speech, got the woman's name wrong in a speech, and then politicized it by trying to blame Republicans. And somehow it's the Republicans' fault. Now, most of you guys who regularly listen to the show know that I self identify as conservative. Don't necessarily see myself with an R at the end of the name, although. I do tend to lean towards the R's just because that's usually where you can still find most of the conservatives in the political world. Unfortunately, there's way too many progressives now with an R at the end of their name. That's a different story. But for the person who's supposed to be the president of the United States to stand up on national television giving a speech about what amounts to a tragedy and to try to blame Republicans for refusing to pass Gun control legislation, and for refusing to try to pass comprehensive immigration reform, which is DC doublespeak for amnesty, it made my blood boil. I literally had blood shooting out of my eyes at this point. This is—I was so infuriated when I heard the speech. But as we go further and further with this, it becomes even more obvious that there was so much wrong with this situation. The alien, the illegal alien in question, and he is not an undocumented worker. He is not an undocumented immigrant. Immigrants have legal status. Immigrant is a legal procedure. Stop with the double talk. Call a spade a spade. Tell the truth about what's going on. This illegal alien, this man who has invaded our country multiple times because he has been deported in the past, still manages to get himself to a sanctuary city, this time in the form of San Francisco. He supposedly finds a stolen gun that belonged to a federal agent, gives excuses in multiple stories, and... First, he was shooting at sea lions, which is also uh, not exactly legal. Then uh, he says that uh, finding the gun, he hadn't even completely gotten it out of the shirt that he found it in, and it accidentally discharged morons what to try and give excuses oh well the reason for the different stories is because he didn't understand the questions because he didn't speak English well enough to understand if he doesn't speak English well enough to understand the questions one would question why he's here in the first place sorry I don't buy it I don't believe that he didn't understand the questions I believe the man was lying that he didn't understand who he was lying to at the time now, I don't know what the actual motivation this guy had is, and I doubt, given the way the media is covering the story, that even if he admits it publicly, that we'll ever really find out what this person's motivation for shooting this woman was. I've heard all kinds of conspiracy theories. I don't want to deal with conspiracies on this. I want to deal with this very simple fact that you have the this, this sheriff in the county trying to blame the feds. You have the feds. Trying to blame the local sheriff. Oh, you're misinterpreting the local law. Uh, You're misinterpreting the federal law. Oh, it's a sanctuary city, so they've been told not to cooperate anyway. Let's get down to the bottom of the whole issue, shall we? A 32-year-old young lady has had her life snuffed out by someone who should never have been in this country, and his presence here was both facilitated and protected by – … … leftist morons in the state of California who don't seem to understand that by protecting illegals, they are propagating crime. Mary asked a question about uh, aren't there more random girls being shot like that, and yes, uh, there was another big uh, story that went on just this past week about a young lady that was basically execution-style uh, killed by a shotgun by a black man, apparently random. Uh, That seems to be more related to the possibility of a gang initiation thing. But again, that's just how that story's been reported, and I've never heard anything definitive yet. Uh, I've also heard a couple of other stories where, yes, that's been happening, and primarily in California, although in different parts of the the state. Uh, The young lady in question I just mentioned, shot by the black man, uh, happened in Hollywood, if I'm remembering correctly, and, yeah, this type of violence is is unacceptable, and you would expect that the President of all of America would have more to say and be more concerned about these apparent random acts of violence. I know if I was sitting in the White House, and by no means does that mean that I want to ever be the president, Uh, that's not my gig. Uh, When you're actually doing the job and doing it right, it's tough. It's a hard job, and that's the kind of job that you really – you see a lot of people who want to be president that are in it uh, mostly driven by ego. But I think being president, even being a U.S. senator, those are jobs that you should take on because of a calling from God. God has not called me to take on anything like that yet, so that is not the job for me, and I don't want it. But I'm thinking that if you are the president of the United States, that you should be expressing deep concern over violence within the country that seems to be random and be looking to try and find solutions. Not that we really expect solutions from D.C., but the bully pulpit is a powerful place. That's part of what so infuriated me that instead of saying maybe we as liberals, maybe we as the Democratic Party should take a closer look at this idea of sanctuary cities, he decides to say, well, this is because of immigration reform and because of gun control. If we had better gun control, this gun was stolen. This was a stolen gun from a federal agent. How it got in his hands, he claims he just found it. Who knows if he's the guy who stole it, or maybe he did just randomly find it, whoever did steal it, trying to ditch it. I wasn't there. I don't know. I can't tell what this guy has going on in his head. But what I can tell you is that regardless the very practice of sanctuary cities must be reconsidered. The very idea that a city is going to decide to be safe haven for people that are not supposed to be here, many of whom have violent pasts, they need to take another look at it. I understand the whole idea of looking at the poor migrants who are just trying to find a better life and feeling empathy for them and wanting to be helpful to them, but you're not really doing them any favors by looking the other way when they violate our law. They'd be much better off coming here legally. Anyway, you want to start a program that raises money as an outreach program to try and help people legally immigrate here who would be hardworking, decent folks? All for it. Let's do it. Let's do that. But let's stop turning a blind eye to the violence that happens oftentimes when it comes to the coyotes bringing these people across. I have seen estimates as high as 40 to 50% of the women that are brought across now by coyotes get raped if they make it alive here in the first place by these people as a result of trying to come here illegally. There's another part of the war on women that the left ignore, and it has nothing to do with the right. Mary says that the agent… Who had his weapon uh, stolen from him should be fired. I, I would tend to agree with you, but it's my understanding that uh, the agent in question had to leave his weapon in his vehicle because of a gun free zone that he was entering. So, you know, he, he was attempting to follow the law of uh, the local area. So I don't know if you can really blame him for that or not. Now, if it was stolen from him while it was in his care, then that's one thing. But, uh, you know, when it's taken from your car, when you have to leave it in your car because you're following the local ordinances, you know, you you want your law enforcement agents. And this guy, land management, uh, I think, something along those lines, he's not an agent you really would expect to have to have a firearm, actually, when you take a look at it, but... Mary's quick to point out that it isn't just coyotes that are committing the violence against uh, the women that are coming across, and she is absolutely right about that as well. But no matter how you break this down, no matter what you do, you can't get past the fact that this guy got into the country. He'd been deported five times previous to this. Now, this administration hasn't done a whole lot of deportation, period. Period. Obviously, anytime somebody can be deported and come back across, get caught, get deported again, that should tell us everything we need to know about the, how the system is simply not being enforced. There's really no need for new laws. They talk about comprehensive immigration reform, and of course,
3: you
4: know, everybody knows by now that's just code for let's just uh, offer amnesty to everybody who's here. Because, how many times have you heard this one? Stop me if if you haven't. We just don't have the resources to round them all up and send them all back. Well, that's not the point. The point is a simple one, and that is something has to be done, and you can't continue to ignore the fact that there is a high number of violent criminals that are in and amongst the folks that are coming across. Well, the ones that are coming across illegally anyway. Immigration has to be done legally. It's just that simple. And when you look at the efforts by this administration to both politicize this shooting and do so in a fashion to try and push new gun control regulations and to reopen the argument about why we should be letting more people in freely in this comprehensive reform, we don't need reform. We just need to enforce the laws we currently have. That's where we are at, ladies and gentlemen. That's where we need to be. We need to be looking at enforcement of the laws that already exist because there are opportunities. There are guest worker visas. There are programs on the book that the people that are coming here just to work could take full advantage of like I said, if you want to start some kind of new program that makes it easier for these folks to to make their way here, the ones that are going to be hard workers that just want to come to work, but they're doing those jobs that Americans don't want to do, can, can do that. Help them come here legally. There's some compassion That's what compassionate people do is they find a reasonable way to be helpful. They don't just turn a blind eye when people have to go through things that are abusive to them to get here in the first place and have to behave almost like slaves, at least for a part of the time they're here. Those are not good things, and that is not compassion. At any rate... That's it. That's the two outrages of the week that I picked for this week, but oh boy, were there more. This has been a, a busy week. Going to take a, a quick break right now. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we are slated to have Dr. William Braggs on in the second hour. Hopefully he will be with us by the time we come back out a break. I uh, have not heard anything from him this morning, so I fully expect him to be joining us here in a little bit. In the meanwhile, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Stay with me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Thanks for staying with me through the break. That, of course, is the song, She Lies, which I like to play quite a bit whenever Hillary Clinton is in the news, and that's often the case because of the campaign. Uh, joining us now is uh, Dr. William Briggs, a Ph.D., and uh, he's joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, and welcome to the show, sir.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
4: Uh, You're very welcome, sir. I always enjoy having somebody who is a genuine, honest-to-goodness scientist who has studied things and knows a little bit more than just talking points. Uh, If you don't mind, uh, would you care to go ahead and give the audience a little bit of background
6: about yourself? Oh, boy. Uh, Well, let's see. Uh, I started out life doing cryptography in the Air Force and moved from that to doing meteorology. I was a forecaster with the Weather Service. And then went and got my master's in atmospheric physics and did a Ph.D. in statistics looking at the goodness and usefulness of forecasts, particularly climate forecasts, and latterly moved into philosophy of science.
4: All right. Well, it certainly sounds like you have the kind of background that gives you a lot of credibility when it comes to the topic of climate change.
6: Oh yeah, I've, been, I, yeah, I, I've published. Uh, I published in the Journal of Climate. I was for several years associate editor of Monthly Weather Review. That's the big, the big journal uh, in meteorolo- uh, meteorological terms. Uh, published about uh, climate change. Published about uh, applied climate work. I was on the American Meteorological Society's Probability and Statistics Committee, uh, and I'm still active. Uh, We had a paper, uh, Lord Christopher Monckton, myself, uh, Willie Soon, David Legit which was internationally publicized back in February, which led to a firestorm of activity. Uh, How dare we question uh, the consensus? And that led to congressional action. It led to uh, my site was hacked. Uh, My colleague Willie Soon was threatened to be fired uh, from his job at Harvard Smithsonian Institute. I mean, uh, big, big trouble we caused.
4: Well, didn't you guys know this is settled science? Haven't you got that memo? <laughs>
6: That's it. No science is ever settled. Uh, <laughs> philosophy can be settled, but not science. Unfortunately, I mean, if science was settled, we this is the this is the kicker for this. If science is settled, then we needn't do any more research on this. I guess we can cut off all funding for any future climatological research because, of course, it's settled. What what the government means, and what the government has always meant by that, is that they have decided in advance the results that they wanted, uh, and therefore it is settled. Anything that disputes those results or even refutes those results is not wanted, not needed, and is excoriated or uh, argued away or just plain ignored. Uh, science has now become politics, unfortunately, And uh, the the, the tremendous amount of money awash in the system uh, has led to this corruption, I think.
4: Well, that was actually going to be one of my questions, but you already kind of hit on it. It's obvious. Based on everything that uh, you and your associates have had to say, the bottom line is, is that anybody even familiar with scientific method now knows that most of the models that suggested global warming or flawed from the beginning, but so many people tend to still kind of cling to that but make excuses for one exception or another.
6: Let me let me give you two points on that. The first is no scientist I know, not a single one, none, denies that, uh, that mankind has an influence on the climate. Every single one of us acknowledges this without exception and has never deviated from that. It's obvious. It's trivial that we influence the climate. But then so does every other species. Ants do, aardvarks do, radishes do, everything does. We're all part of nature, and as such, we all form what nature is. And every one of us, every one of these species and every natural thing influences the climate. The question has always been, how much? And so that is the part that you're talking about there. Now, it used to be In science, everybody knew a fundamental principle was that if you made predictions, if you had a model which made predictions, and those predictions did not accord with the reality, that meant that the theory that underlie your model must be wrong. And that has to be the case with climate models, because for the past two decades, 20 years, the forecasts have been for temperatures much higher than we've actually observed. And not only that, the discrepancy between the forecasts and reality has been growing larger and larger and larger. And this must mean, it can only mean, that the models are wrong and that the theory which is driving these models must be wrong. And therefore, that theory that uh, minor increases in a trace gas, carbon dioxide, is somehow driving dangerous levels of climate change, must be false. And every scientist before, if this wasn't a political matter, every scientist now would agree with that statement because it has to be true. If we're going to abandon this principle in science, we're abandoning science itself.
3: All right. Well,
4: and it basically still comes back to either the research dollars or the fear of the ridicule that comes from the rest of the community
6: there's that uh so for instance when we published this one paper uh, I mentioned when models run hot that's the name of it uh your listeners can google that and download a copy themselves it's not light reading but uh it attracted the attention of congress uh one uh congressman a representative uh went after several employers of climate scientists, act, asking for correspondence, emails, uh funding levels and the like. And then uh, the kicker was uh, Senator Barbara Boxer and uh, Tim Whitehouse and a couple of others, all Democrats, wrote letters to 100 companies that they suspected of funding people like myself. Uh, and this is the kicker. This is the quote, uh, funding people who, quote, design to confuse the public about carbon pollution so these senators tried to intimidate anybody who might fund science that goes against what the government wants uh, in a in a Lysenkoist fashion i mean this is politics trying to dictate the results and there's no clearer example of it than this
4: all right so um, in your opinion what do you think is the driving force for the political side it's just to push the political agenda, or is this ignorance on their own part or maybe a combination of the two?
6: I think the ignorance part is there, uh, but probably minor. I mean, uh, most people, by the time they do get to the highest level offices, are not complete fools. Uh, They can judge these sorts of evidential claims uh, like anybody else can. But it's not so much that. I think it's the first part. I think it's self-aggrandizement. What I often say is it's, it's not so much that people believe in global warming. It's that they believe in the solution to global warming. That's what right. they want. That's what they're after. They want to have, And what's the solution? Well, it's bigger government. It's more need for the politicians' services. It's greater bureaucracy. It's greater regulation, uh, heavier taxation, even a call – uh, for more uh, uh, one-world government type things, where it's not just one nation doing things, but it's some top-level uh, you know organization that will decide our fates. And I, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Okay, you know, uh, old Dr. Briggs here doesn't know what he's talking about. But there's this guy named Hans Schellenhuber. Uh, who is a scientist who advised Pope Francis on his environmental encyclical. And he has written about, in public terms, these are his words now, what he calls the gross transformation to a one-world government. Uh, He wants to have a uh, sort of like a new constitution, a global constitution. He wants to have a global council that is elected by all the members of the planet Earth, and he wants to have a sort of uh, judging body that sits atop all this and that levies penalties and fines and it basically enforces whatever problems that this global council deems to exist. They get to, they get to not only fine the people for these things, but they get to uh, decide what the problems are. So it's a win-win situation for them. And it sounds like a nutty thing, uh, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it isn't.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find out this information uh, through some simple Google searches. Uh, yeah, it's not go, hard the best places.
6: I have articles on this at stream the Uh People can look that up. It's a great site. It's a it's a news site that's based a newish site that's based on news and information uh, designed around the truth. And uh, I have my own site as well, wmbriggs.com. But uh, the best site to go to, I think, is stream.org.
4: All right. Uh, The bottom line, though, is I was going to say, doctors, that uh, tinfoil hats are welcome here as long as they've got facts to back it up. So conspiracy theory or not, if it's a real conspiracy, it's not just a theory.
6: Well, it's not so much a conspiracy. I mean, a conspiracy is something that they try to hide. Right. Uh, You know, that they try to do behind the scenes. But these are open calls. I I, I published this piece in the stream. I used Sean Huber's own words. It's not like I'm uh, I'm, you know, making this stuff up and making judgment calls or something like this. This is his own call. And he his fingerprints. Are on Pope Francis's environmental encyclical. I mean, Pope Francis said he said it's essential devise to devise stronger and more efficiently organized international institutions, which are empowered to impose sanctions. And he has, you know, later called for uh, uh, the UN when it meets and other representatives meet in uh, l- later this year to bring these bodies into existence I I find this frightening because why do we need to increase uh, this type of government secular government in particular it's just not going to lead to any good I don't think
4: I I tend to agree with you Uh, there's obviously a power play involved this is about trying to further reach into everybody's life but I guess the question I keep coming back to is other than the money or the ridicule, don't true scientists have almost an obligation to address the facts and reevaluate and step forward when they find a problem with the models.
1: They
6: absolutely have this obligation. 100% they do. And it's to their shame that they're not speaking out like, uh, like some of us are, uh, so what some they can be wrong there's nothing wrong with being wrong if you like uh, right. that's what science is about i mean not everybody is going to get everything right and most things are wrong that's fine but if as after it is proved to be wrong and you still cling to it because it is politically viable to do so that is where you fun, that's where you morally err that's the real problem we have right now people aren't speaking up because they're frightened And I don't blame them for being frightened. You you have the entire weight of the U.S. government coming down upon you, not to mention these international organizations. I mean, we are often accused of being in the pay of big oil or something like this. Well, I've never received a penny from any oil company or any, uh, any company even affiliated with any oil company. It's not like I wouldn't have taken the money. I have no moral scruples against it, but they don't offer it. It's right. not out there for us to take. This, this, we're we're self-funded, uh, in some cases not funded at all. This has only cost me money to to make these sort of claims. I don't get anything from this. It only causes me grief. Yet uh, we're the we're the bad guys in this situation somehow.
4: Well, you know the uh, machine that uh, is perpetuating the settled science of climate change. Yeah, they don't want your voices to be out there and they certainly would do things to make it harder for somebody to uh facilitate uh helping you guys out financially. Uh if somebody wanted to uh donate to your uh, work though, uh, can they do that at your website?
6: Yeah, they can. It's wmbriggs.com. If if they were so generous, they're welcome to, of course. I'd appreciate mm-hmm. it, but uh you know, it's not just me. There's there, there's a handful of us out there, uh, not many uh you know the heartland institute is uh, very good it's a think tank based out of chicago at bringing together scientists and they have a yearly meeting uh the heartland uh, it's called the international climate conference or a semi-yearly meeting and people could look that kind of thing up too i gave a speech there uh last month on one of the topics we, we you and i just talked about the need to believe in the solution uh, to global warming, I have that online. People can watch that it's, it 's it We have a real problem here. Um, we have these politicians, and they 're certainly behaving as politicians do they don 't care whether this global warming theory is true or not they 're just going to use uh the fact that people believe it 's true to further their own agenda that much we know. But in dealing with ordinary people, many ordinary people do in fact believe. Uh, that uh, the world has been getting worse, but it's not true. Many people don't know, for instance, that the past 20 years, the temperature has not increased. Uh, The temperature has been, you know, it's bounced around a little bit, but it's been fairly steady. Uh, The ice content of the world has increased overall. Um, Sea levels are not rising dangerously. Uh, species are not dying off as uh, people have predicted. And in fact, things seem to be getting nicer. Uh, the world is getting greener. One thing we know is carbon dioxide is good for plants, and so any increase is going to be somewhat better for them. Things aren't things aren't worse. You know, we should be celebrating this, but we're not. Right. And so that's very puzzling, unless you consider it in the form of a, 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 so almost a religious belief uh, on the part right. of some of these people.
4: Well, th- there's no question that it has, it has become almost a religion. I, I think it meets every definition. Uh, but also to your point about how things are not going that way, I know just this past week uh, a new study was released talking about uh, some scientists have now modeled, they think they've cracked the solar cycle, Saying something about the sun will be going to sleep in 2030, and they expect almost a mini ice age.
6: Yeah. Now, this uh, the reason for that is that we should that we should greet this claim with skepticism, like we greet any new claim. N- not, right. not that they're wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong, but uh, it's not proven yet. What they've done so far is they have a new statistical technique that they've tried. And looked at the solar cycle, uh, this, at least the sunspot number of sunspots, and there was a time in the past called the Maunder minimum, minimum rather, a prolonged period which there were very few to no uh, sunspots. That was associated with a great cooling period on the Earth. Uh, for instance, the big example everybody uses is the Thames River in England was frozen over, which rarely happens and hasn't happened in quite some time. And their model, their new model, predicts that uh, we're going to be entering another one of these quiescent phases uh, of the sun. And if that's true, and if the sun affects the climate uh, to the extent that they say it's true, temperatures could decrease. And it might. They might be right. But in order to believe this, we need to wait until uh, their forecasts are verified. Just like we need to wait. A, we, we need to wait until the. Uh, climatologists' forecasts are verified. We can't just believe it because it sounds good. Although right. there's some there's some evidence that uh, you know it's a reasonable thing. It's not it's not implausible. Put it that way.
4: Okay. Yeah, I, I just keep uh, and to go along with your point that we shouldn't just jump on the bandwagon. I seem to remember back in the 70s, climatologists talking about a, an oncoming ice age. Then too, and I don't remember what? that happening. So.
6: Well, the reason was, is uh, it wasn't so much that uh, the ice age was coming. It's true that they said that, but here's why. Uh, They were led, in fact, by these early environmentalists, notably Paul Ehrlich, who posited this thing called the population bomb. We were going to produce so many new people, and these people were going to produce so much more pollution, you know, regular air pollution, that it was going to knock the sun's rays back into space. And that was going to lead to a cooling which was going to trigger a new uh, glaciation and of course it didn't happen not only did the, nu- the number of people increase but they did there was no great die-off as they predicted the, num- the the amount of pollution actually went down in most places not everywhere localized there are still troubles like in shanghai and beijing and places like this that are rapidly developing but we of course did not plunge ourselves into another i well another glaciation so uh that that died because what happened was uh the reality met the predictions and and everybody understood then at least that reality won well the climate continued to change as it has always changed it has never stayed still ever and so there's no rational reason to believe that it will ever stay so uh and it warmed slightly in the uh in the 90s particularly through the 80s to the 90s and so that had to be blamed on some something well heaven for that it's actually anything uh outside of mankind so they had to find a way to re, uh, to blame it on mankind and this is how they came up with this idea that carbon dioxide very small increases in this very minor trace gas would, through these highly exaggerated positive feedback mechanisms, lead to catastrophic warming. Well, that hasn't occurred. It's been two decades now where the forecasts have not only failed, as we said, but have grown worse and worse. But now that the, the, the political system has changed so that uh, everybody is embracing this, they have a much harder time letting it go. Now you'll know more than I what's going to what what it's going to take to have them drop this. I I don't know. I, I'm completely ignorant about this, and uh, I'm fearful that they they won't. They just will keep pressing on.
4: Great. Well, Doctor, I, I want to thank you very much for coming on today, giving up part of your Sunday to be with us. Uh, I know you actually had some other interviews today as well, so you've been kind of busy. So appreciate you taking your time and coming on today. Thank you, sir.
6: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
4: Well, you are always welcome. And at any time if you would like to come on in the future, if you've got something upcoming, a new paper you want to talk about or a new book, feel free to do so. And, again, just a quick reminder, if people want to find your website, uh, they, find that
6: they can go to stream.org or wmbriggs.com.
4: All right. Again, thank you very much, sir. You have a great uh, upcoming week, and uh, God bless you.
6: You too. God bless you.
4: All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was uh, PhD Dr. William Briggs. He is a uh, a renowned climatologist. He's uh, still writing papers. He's got the background. He knows the science. He knows what's going on. And yeah, I, I think he said it about as well as anybody can. That it becomes pretty obvious at a point that the people that are clinging to this are either doing so out of an agenda. Or out of fear. At, any rate, uh, at this point, I would like to go ahead and take another quick break. And then at the end of that, we'll come back and uh, we'll do the end run for the remainder of the show. So if you don't mind staying with me, I will be right back. Thank you very much. Hi. Staying with us for the break I just uh, Just wanted to get back and Remind everybody if you missed the beginning of the show uh, And you were interested in hearing More about the 10th Amendment Center uh, Michael Meharry was on He's the uh, National Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center And of course we discussed In that first hour uh, The topic of nullification Went over the legal Aspects of it, how it is actually Legal but how a lot of people don't necessarily know or understand what nullification actually is, as opposed to rumors, myths, and what have you. So a lot of misinformation, so we tried to clear some of that up. I also would like to remind you, you can find links to uh, Michael's personal website, as as well as the Tenth Amendment Center's website, uh, and links to uh, Dr. Briggs' website as well on the show description. You can find those. Check them out. Uh, I highly recommend you do so. Uh, I, I highly recommend anybody listening to the show, if you have interest whatsoever, in preserving the Constitution, preserving limited government, uh, that you definitely worth the time to go check out the 10th Amendment Center, and it's definitely worthwhile to uh, listen to Michael's podcast as well. You can find that at his uh, personal web his personal website. Uh, I spent some time there myself. Uh, prepping for the show, getting ready to speak to him. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I know Mary was here for that part of the show. I don't know what her thoughts were on him, but uh, I found him to be very uh, knowledgeable, very focused, and uh, he's smart as a whip. So I highly suggest if you missed that part of the show uh, to go back and check it out. And please spend a little time at the 10th Amendment Center's website. Now uh also I think the most interesting thing that we came across here to cap off our conversation with Doctor Briggs is the fact that, as a lot of us have been saying for some time, science is not settled. If science was ever settled, we'd still believe in a flat planet that the entire universe circled around. We're not the center of the universe. Well, <laughs> Most of us aren't. There may be a few of us who think we are, but that's another story. But we're not the center of the universe. We don't live on a flat planet. Science is not settled. That's the point. Uh, Those people that want to squash discussion and squash scientific discovery, those individuals looking for new models, there is usually an agenda behind it, and it normally doesn't have anything to do with the advancement of knowledge, which is what our efforts into science are supposed to be about. Now, for those of you who will indulge me, uh, I would also like to uh take a moment to uh discuss Mary in the chat room. Uh she spent some time this past week uh with a group of uh folks, uh everybody from our own exceptional conservative to our underground professor. Uh and she got the chance to meet some fine folks like Colonel Alan West. Uh, I want to give that special shout-out to her because uh, she got to go because these guys got together, and they decided to bring her, and I was very proud of those guys for doing that because, like I said before, Mary does more to encourage conservative conversation uh, here at BTR than most of the hosts do. She gets in there. She encourages folks. She stands guard in the chat room over people that would attack uh, unduefully. Uh, She is a fantastic person to have in your corner, and I'm always proud to have her in my chat room. And, again, I'm very glad you got the opportunity to do this, uh, to travel to this particular convention, to get to spend some time with the people you did, and... I want to thank you and Lady Michelle both, uh, who are probably a couple of the most loyal listeners to the show on a regular basis. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, But uh, I want you to know how much that I love and appreciate you guys being here as well. With that having been said, let's get back into some of the news stories from the past week, because there was this one story that I just absolutely have to touch on. Uh, By now, you probably heard that the director for the personnel agency has resigned, and this had to do with uh, the data breach that occurred not long ago. Well, Catherine, who was the director of the Office of Personnel Management, resigned under pressure this past Friday, which was just one day after the government revealed that two sweeping cyber attacks on the agency's computer had resulted in the theft of personal information of more than 22 million people, including those who had applied for sensitive security clearances. Uh, she went to the White House on Friday morning to inform the occupier, a.k.a. Barack Hussein Obama, that she was stepping down immediately. She said later in a statement that she felt new leadership was needed at the federal agencies and in order to enable it to move beyond the current challenges. Her resignation marked a swift reversal, but did little to calm the aftershocks of the disclosure this week of what appears to be the largest cyber theft affecting the federal government in history. On Thursday, she actually insisted in a conference call with reporters that she would stay on to address the vulnerabilities that led to the breach. Both attacks are believed to have originated in China, but administration officials have declined to name a culprit. Mr. Obama himself and his administration uh, struggled Friday to cope with the fallout from the intrusion. This compromised social security numbers, addresses, financial and health histories, and other private details of over twenty two million American citizens. To come to terms with a longer term implications of the computer security lapse that has underscored severe weakness across the
0: federal government.
4: It's like the only people who don't understand cybersecurity is our government. Now here's what I find amazing about this in the first place. Number one, ordinarily, when somebody screws up this big, at least in the Obama administration, it's been the habit that she would get transferred to another agency and then get promoted. I don't think this resignation was her idea the day before, she was defiantly telling people that she was not going to resign. She was fired up, and she was ready to defend her position, and she was going to do the job of fixing the problem. Sorry, Catherine. There's no fixing this problem. It's already happened. Now, in an effort to prevent future failures of this nature, okay, I'll grant you that. Maybe you would have a leg up over somebody else coming in because By now, I would hope, if you're even the least bit confident, that you would have some idea of where the failures were. But she's an administrator, and I don't think she's a computer tech. I don't think she's an IT person. I don't think she has any idea what to do other than outsource. And the question is, is this administration at any point in any department capable of properly outsourcing IT work? This is Give no-bid contracts to their old college buddies is what I've seen. Remember the Obamacare website? The Federal Exchange? I seem to recall massive failures? Multi-million dollars spent? Now granted, I don't have the greatest website on the planet that uh, corresponds with the show, and I am in the middle right now trying to Uh, revamp a new look for the homepage, but I have a website up that is secure and well, I tend to think it's somewhat professional looking, despite the fact that I am a bit amateurish on the level. Uh, The point being, I haven't spent millions of dollars. This is a completely independent show. I currently I have no sponsors other than myself. Uh, now, if anybody would like to donate, of course, you're welcome to. I wouldn't turn it down, but <laughs> that'd be neither here nor there. The point is, this lady became the sacrificial lamb. I don't know how effective she was at her job up to this point. I don't know that this is somebody that uh, deserve to be fired over this because the bottom line is when it comes to cybersecurity, I'm pretty sure other agencies are supposed to be lending a hand. Now far be it for me to take up for anybody that's working for uh, this administration. I tend to think that the only people who get jobs in this administration are people that Barack or the real person behind Strange, Valerie Jarrett, owes a favor to that does seem to be the way things have went from the very beginning of this administration. We're going to offer grants to Green Energy. Well, here you go, Solyndra. It doesn't matter that you've shown uh, no financial numbers that look like you're going to accomplish anything other than possibly going bankrupt with millions Oh, – I'm sorry, billions of taxpayer dollars in your pocket when you go. Lady Michelle makes a great point in the chat room. She just says it's the head of the snake that needs to be disposed of as soon as possible. In this particular case, I tend to think that goes back to Valerie Jarrett. Uh, a lot of people tend to want to point fingers at Barack. Well, the occupier is not much more than the occupier. Uh, he spends some time in the White House, and he goes golfing a lot, and he campaigns. He's really good at campaigning. If… If you're running a campaign and you want to run for office, the same people that are helping Barack would be a good group of people to hire. The uh, only problem with that is, is you're probably going to have to compromise any principles you might have going in, unless you're a complete and total Marxist, in which case your principles would fit right in. Now, what's the real fallout? Uh, people aren't even that angry about this. You know, I spent some time over at TeaPartyCommunity.com. Yes, there's a, a plug for them. Uh, website that I – their social media site, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, They're basically someplace a lot like Facebook, only you don't have all the crazy liberals trying to troll you, at least not too often. Uh, They do get over there occasionally. But other than at TeaPartyCommunity.com, there wasn't very much discussion about this, and most of the discussion that was going on was very temperate. It's almost like they're expecting the fact that uh, she's resigned is going to end the question. It's going to end the discussion. And it shouldn't, because the real discussion here should be how can we feel safe in this world of identity theft when social security numbers, home addresses, medical histories all get taken? This is every piece of information you need to go start and open up credit accounts. This is every piece of information you need to try and blackmail someone, which is the real reason why the Chinese would be interested in it in the first place. Everybody seems convinced that it's China that's behind it. But they want to talk about how you basically have to be concerned about these hackers. These hackers did it. Hackers in China are not like anonymous. You know, Here in the States and in the UK, anonymous uh hack activists they're free flowing they're secretive they're doing their business, and they are unaffiliated with anything other than their own group that's not the case in China in China to be a hacker you've got to have access to the computers and the internet in a fashion that most citizens don't have in China if you're a hacker, you're working for the government. It was an open act of warfare, and in this case, it was an attempt targeting mostly at federal employees to try and find out who might be who might be at greatest risk, we'll say, of being manipulated and turned to work for the Chinese government. Now it sounds like I'm the one with the tinfoil hat on now, right? Well I'm just asking you to think about it logically for a few minutes. Why would the Chinese government give half a rat's backside about this particular information unless it is, in fact, to try and get access to government employees. These government employees have access to who knows what all, data, information, infrastructure. It was an open act of war. But because it's still hidden behind this ideology of somehow the cyber world isn't exactly real, then we're still faced trying to get people to wrap their mind around the very notion. It has real-world ramifications. I mean it's kind of like… A really great line in a promo for the show, CSI Cyber, I think it's another show. I've never actually watched the show, never seen it. But there's this great line in the promo coming out where uh, she's giving this uh, speech about how she tracks uh, crimes in cyberspace that play out in the real world. That's the connection that most people don't seem to have. There are real world ramifications for the actions that take place online. Ask anybody who's been cyber bullied. Ask anybody who's sexted something to some moron that wants to repost those uh, photos to other places. There are real world ramifications for what transpires online. Now, uh, Lady Michelle uh, makes a, a pretty good point in so much as saying that maybe uh, China's trying to figure out what Obama's got over Boehner and Roberts. (laughs) And that might very well be uh, part of the case too, because, you know, obviously it must be big, so why not find that out too and use it yourself? (laughs) It's just an amazing situation that we're looking at. I've always found it interesting, though, in the past, when you see somebody resign and suddenly that's supposed to make the issue go away. Just like the stall tactics we saw at the Benghazi hearings as far as Hillary Clinton uh, stalled and stalled, and then once it was time for her to step out of office, suddenly she thought she no longer had a need to testify. One of the best things What's happened this past week was when Trey Gowdy, along with the rest of the Republicans on the particular—oh, sorry—I got—I got called away for a second. Uh, what happens when uh, one of the best things that's happened this past week, Trey Gowdy and the uh, committee that's investigating Benghazi, released the subpoena from Ms. Hillary. You know, the subpoena that Hillary claims multiple times in the past three months didn't exist, and it was out there. And I think that was great. That's the feel-good story of the week. Uh, here's somebody in the government standing up saying, uh, this person's lying, and here's the proof. And some, uh, some humor in the chat room going on talking about Donald Trump now. I just have to... To go ahead and point out, uh, Mary says that if Trump gets in office, he'll save us by filing bankruptcy. Uh, we got into the discussion. That Lady Michelle was asking about what happens when China calls in the debt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Trump is a, a, a whole different ballgame as far as conversation-wise, and it, it is funny to an extent to see him standing up to the. Uh, the establishment Republicans, there's no question. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of negative things to say about him. And I, for one, I still think he's got too much ego to make for a serious candidate. And I hate the fact that as long as he's in the race, other candidates are going to spend as much time, if not more time, talking about something Donald just said as opposed to what their own policies Are and how they'll move forward. We talked about earlier the politicalization of shooting of the 32-year-old woman by an illegal alien in San Francisco. One of the funniest moments of the past week was when, on the view of all places, and I caught this on a clip online, I don't normally watch the view myself. Uh, one of the ladies on the view actually tried to insinuate that the timing of this shooting coincided with Donald Trump's illegal immigration stance, and you know again, I'm using the term illegal immigration I should not uh it's there's no such thing as illegal immigration, not by definition but to go so far is to have everybody fired up about what Donald Trump's saying, and then the left coming up with conspiracy theories. Uh, it's rather entertaining. But at the same time, I think it does take away from good candidates getting an opportunity to move their uh, policies forward. We're spending way too much time talking about it. And as far as Trump as a candidate, yeah, Donald's a progressive. He's for big business. He's floated the idea of forcibly taking money out of people's savings accounts to pay off the debt. He's uh, thrown out some other crazy ideas, too, I don't have right here in front of me, but uh, we've talked about them before. Uh, Donald Trump is not somebody that belongs on a Republican ticket. Uh, Of course, then neither is Chris Christie or Jeb Bush, but uh, they're not going anywhere. Ultimately, What we have going on here is a distraction again, and I think we have enough distractions going on. We need to try and cut through all that and get back to the focus points of what is important. What is important for this country is the continued threat of Islam. What is important for this country is the fact that there are people in pockets in this country trying to convince reasonable Americans that aren't paying that much attention… That it's okay to let the Muslims live under Sharia law in small groups or wherever they're at we have people in this country that are completely ignoring the fact that we're being overrun and invaded by criminal elements across our southern border, that's something Donald has spoke up and said and he's gotten strong voices to advocate on his behalf uh, Sheriff Aparo in, in Arizona has uh, was doing an event or is doing an event with him uh, for just that purpose so you know if donald can actually shed some light on that and bring a level of awareness that would be great people i had a conversation with a a couple of different people just this past week in regards to why are there so many stories about these illegal aliens committing so much crime lately and the answer is a simple one it's like since donald said what he said some sources have been shamed into covering these stories now that they ordinarily were just looking the other way. I made the point clearly that this isn't a new phenomenon. It's been going on. These people have been committing crimes. And when I say these people, I mean the criminal aspect. Obviously, not everybody that crosses the border is a bad person. you know
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: But at the same time, they're still criminals because they're coming across illegally. That is the definition of a criminal, right? Some of these people are decent, hardworking folks that don't want anything more than an opportunity to work. And that is fine. But again, as we said earlier... Come here legally. I don't have a problem with guest worker visas. I don't have a problem with legal immigration, but that is it. You have to come here the right way. If you didn't come across our border the way you're supposed to come across our border, you have no business here. But ultimately, the thing that the left and the media in particular has been trying to sweep up under the rug is the high level of crimes committed by criminal elements that are coming across that border to avoid persecution in their home country. And when they have so much help in the form of sanctuary cities from left-leaning politicians, how can we expect anything less? It's, It's a case of The left – I've never understood why people on the left are always so quick to defend criminals, but they're more than happy to kill the innocent. And yes, I'm talking about abortion. Why are they so quick to to stand up for murderers and rapists and defend them, that they're victims somehow? I suppose… When that starts to make sense to me, it's probably time for me to have one of those lovely little jackets, you know, the ones with the sleeves that tie in the back, because there will be something wrong with me when that starts to make sense. The problem that we face is that sometimes our biggest enemy isn't Islamist that wants to behead us or the criminal, gun-running, drug-running uh, Mexican drug lord who pays no attention to our border, or even the politicians in Washington, D.C., who have no idea that there are real-world consequences to the average everyday American because they're so far above those average everyday Americans. Sometimes our biggest enemy in this country are other everyday average Americans who have just tuned out. So here comes the same old song and dance, the same refrain, the same routine you've heard from me a million times. That's why it's up to us to to have the conversations with the folks that aren't paying attention. I've had conversations with folks in the past who swore to me up and down, left and right, that they were progressives. And then when we went down a list of questions, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? Uh, what do you think about this? Turned out they weren't quite so progressive after all. But we have people that are living under the misconception that they're supposed to follow a party line. That's why in the past when I had uh, Dr. Sharon Schatz on a multitude of time when she was working actively with Lady Patriots, uh, one of the things I loved about – all of the lady patriots, is that they were standing up and they were defying one of the stereotypes. Because the left wants to convince you that if you're a woman, if you're uh, black, if you're uh, Hispanic, if you're any one of these descriptions, if you see yourself as a minority in this country, then you need to vote for them and you need to be on board with whatever it is they want because they're for you. But before...  … before Martin Luther King Jr. got sprung from jail by JFK, black people didn't vote Democrat. They voted Republican, and they knew dang well the reason why, because it was the Republican Party that ended slavery in this country. Now, I'm not saying that you should just automatically vote R or D regardless, but the point is, is they want to convince you you always should because they're about winning. They're playing a game. And it's a game that's costing Americans our freedoms, our civil liberties, our economic opportunities, and anything sem- any semblance whatsoever of a life worth living. Next generation is going to grow up in a country that personal liberty is going to be scoffed at as a joke. It's going to be a punchline if we don't start turning things around. I do everything I can in speaking to the people that I talk to in person, through social media, and here on BTR and over at Spreaker to try and communicate simple, basic ideas. That conservatism is not about hating people as the left so often tries to paint them. It's about taking personal responsibility, yes, because people who have personal responsibility are people who understand the blessings of liberty. It comes down to simple appreciation. Nobody appreciates the brand-new bicycle you are just handed or the brand-new car you just got for your 18th birthday the same way you would if you would had to go get a part-time job and earn it and pay for it yourself. That's a whole different level of appreciation, so that's a whole different level of understanding what it means to be self-sufficient, what it means to have personal liberty. And personal liberty is worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. It is worth – the only thing that I would not sacrifice is my relationship with God. But thankfully, I don't have to do that because it's my relationship with God that helps to provide me that personal liberty, that gives me the strength to stand up who sends me angels whispering in my ear and chatting in my chat room like Mary and Lady Michelle to help keep focused and motivated and to be willing to continue fighting the good fight in the hopes that one person who maybe was leaning the other way hears some word of wisdom that resonates in their ear. That hears the fact that to be conservative simply means that you have love of things that matter to you, that you have faith in what the framers put together in an effort to try and protect your liberties and your freedom. I'm inside the last 90 seconds now, so I'm going to have to start winding down. Once again, I'd like to thank today's guest. Uh, I think we had a great conversation, Mr. uh, Michael Meharry. National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. I also want to thank uh, Dr. William Briggs. Uh, Both of them had a a lot of good conversation, and I appreciate their information. Remember, links to their webpages can be found in the show description today. If you missed the top of the show, please at some time uh, go back, take a listen. Uh, I think you'll find a conversation with Mr. Meharry worthwhile. And remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, don't take their word for it. Take a little time. Do your own research. Use your brain. And always be prepared to put in at least a little bit of effort on your part if you really want to tap into the truth. Thanks again to Mary and Lady Michelle for stopping in. and always appreciate you guys listening. Uh, thanks to the guests who stopped in listening as well. And guys, have a great week and have uh, a wonderful time. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July weekend. I know I did. Got to sign off now, but we'll be back again next Sunday. Thanks for listening. Remember that we will have Danny Page on this week as well, and probably one other guest that has not yet been uh, finalized yet. In the Meanwhile, I'm going to close out with Miracle, because I think we're all still waiting for one. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.